Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. (sighs) The eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat, my baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. So this week we're talking about the impact that eating disorders have on families. And we're very, very lucky to have the amazing Mora family with us to talk about their experiences with eating disorders. And so thank you all so much for for joining me today. I am so excited to do this with you. So I have a very special connection with Jen and her journey with, with eating disorders and your whole family I sort of feel very connected to now. So it's lovely to have you all here. So I'd love for you to introduce yourselves and then Jen, I'd love for you to give us a bit of an overview of your journey. Perfect. Well, I will go first. My name's Genevieve. I'm 25 and I struggled with anorexia nervosa as a teen. I can get into that more after everyone else is introduced themselves. I'm Helga and my age will remain secret. <laughs> um, and I'm Genevieve's mum. I'm Justin, I'm dad, I'm the oldest in the room. (laughs) Um, And I'm Julia and I'm Genevieve's younger sister. So my personal battle with an eating disorder began around the age of 13, 14. I'd struggled with anxiety really badly since the age of about 10 or 11. Um, It started with nighttime and sleeping. I saw something on the news and I really struggled to feel safe at night. And that developed or morphed into obsessive compulsive disorder. I started doing rituals and engaging in behaviors to uh, calm my anxiety. I thought it was, but actually it was just really increasing that. And long story short, um, my rituals and my behaviors turned into food and exercise. I started eating a lot less and exercising a lot more and was eventually admitted to Starship Children's Hospital medically unstable with anorexia nervosa in January of 2010. And how long were you in hospital for? I was in and out. So me and mum were talking about this yesterday. My first day was three months. I then came out and went back in for a further six weeks and then came back out and had two more stints in the psychiatric unit after that when my OCD got really bad. So it was kind of one thing after the other, a lot of hospital time, and then six months at a residential uh, day program in Auckland as well. And so when would you have said that you were fully recovered, Jen? It's interesting. I've been asked this and there's not like a moment that I was like, yes, I'm well, I'm completely fully better. I didn't wake up someday. You know, we often talk about that Millie and you're not like, 
everything's perfect. I think um, I slowly just started seeing changes and I think it was situations around, you know, being able to go out with friends without feeling anxiety around it and being able to go to birthday parties and social situations that involve food and being okay with that. So I think it was just like a slow realization that I'm not dealing with such a busy mind. My mind's clear and free in this space um, to think and live and focus on important stuff. And so how many years have you sort of been in this recovered space now? How old am I? I'm 25. <laughs> LA at the age of 19. And by then I was very, very well. I'd say at least five years. I'd say for the last five years. And I feel like I'm always getting better. Yes, I'm re- recovered. And I like to talk about being very, very well. Um, but I think as humans, we're always bettering ourselves. And so each day I become a little bit stronger still. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we both obviously work in the mental health space. And I think that that's also helps to sort of keep us on track, doesn't it? Because we're constantly reminded of how far we've come and and the fact that we don't want to go go back there. Completely agree. So in terms of how your family helped you through, what was what was the most important thing that you know, your mum and your dad and and your sister did for you and your recovery, or the most helpful thing? do you feel? I honestly think without my family, I wouldn't be here. They were the biggest support to me. My sister was eight at the time, nine nine at the time. She was so young, uh, five years younger than me, had no idea what was really going on. Uh, Both my parents were my absolute rocks. I think it was just kind of the consistent love and care and also the tough love that came with it as well. I really trusted them. I always have. And I kind of had to trust them even more through that recovery process because they took Mm. a lot of that on hand. But it was just the consistency and holding on to hope for me. I think that they always whether they always did or not, they always told me that they believed I could get better. And that was so important because in the moments where I was like, I can't do this, this is going to be my life forever. My whole family reminded me that it didn't have to be and that they believed I could get through this. So that was really important. And were there particular things that say mum did or dad did or Juliet did that were were different that you, you know, you found really, you know, because I know, for example, there were things that I found really helpful that mum did, but, and there, there were different things that dad did that I found helpful. I think probably with Juliet, her just being my sister and being there as a sibling and not trying to, um, I mean, you've got so many medical professionals around you and people telling you what to do. And she was young, but she was just kind of like my sister, you know, we fought, we continued as if we were siblings. And I think that was really important too. Um, And also just never judged. And maybe that's because she was a young child. I feel like children are very accepting and kind of go with the flow, but she was always kind of brightening up my days. And I remember she'd come to the hospital and she'd say things and put a smile on my face and just kind of reminded me what my life could be like if I worked really hard. Uh, My mum was my constant rock. She did most of my meal support um, along with my dad and was just always there. She's someone that I've always had a really close relationship to. And so she was kind of the person I went to and poured my heart and my feelings out onto, which I think was probably a lot of pressure for her, but she never, um, never voiced that. She was just always there by my side. My dad was also amazing. Uh, he, helped me with my schoolwork a lot, which was very anxiety provoking. Um, history <laughs> did that together, but also just the meal support. And I think the tough love, I think dad, he'll probably say, but he works in the medical field, but having a daughter with an eating disorder was something completely out of his scope. And so he learned a lot throughout the process. And the biggest thing that my dad did was uh, say from the beginning that we had to tell our family and friends, which was so important because it instantly got rid of that shame and that embarrassment as to what I was going through. He was open and honest and that meant that there was lots of support around us. 
Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? Rather than sweeping it under the carpet because then it just makes you feel like there is there is something to be ashamed of and there's absolutely not. And then also I think to have, you know, for you, Helen Justin, to have that that wraparound support from family and, and friends to be able to to get an understanding of what you're going through as well. Okay, so Helga, I want to ask you, how did how did Genevieve's battle affect you? It was devastating, I would say. I felt quite overwhelmed at times. It was incessant. It was just you know, constant. The, the care that was required was, was constant. So it was tiring, but somehow we all just carried on and, and managed. It's awful seeing your child unwell. And I, I think it, um, it showed me that I really am a quite a strong person. It brought out the fact that I'm a very determined person. I was a bit like a dog with a bone, really. <laughs> And there was no way this illness was going to either ruin my daughter's life or kill her. Yeah, that's... that's so it was all positive? I mean, it was positive, but I, you can learn things about yourself without having to go through hideous experiences. Absolutely. Like, um, so I wouldn't recommend it as a, um, as a life Pass. hack. Or whatever. <laughs> what did you find the most challenging? I think it was just the, the constancy of it that... Um, you know, I did take responsibility for most of the the meals, um, just making sure that she was eating um, what she was meant to. You'll know this. No sooner one meal is finished that the other one is starting. And it got, it was just very boring, really. But I just saw it as my role. I mean, obviously, Justin, he did, he did help, but I was at home. I wasn't working at that time. That, and also just, you know, worrying about the future a bit. I always felt that this illness was going to be beaten, did have moments where I wondered if that was the case. Yeah, those moments of doubt. And and, and my mum says the same thing. You know, she had moments where, although she didn't let on, as you say, Jen, you still felt that that hope was being held, but there were definite moments of, oh my goodness, are, are we going to get through this? You know, there's moments of that touch and go and that definite relentless. I remember my mum saying exactly the same thing where it was just like, I just didn't let up with the questions and the reassurance. And and then of course, just the constant need to be feeding your child as well. Is there anything that you found in terms of meal support um, or, or, you know, getting through all of those different meals and prepping and things, any tips for other parents who are doing that that you found particularly helpful? Well, I just seemed to have a really good uh, knowledge or an idea of what was going to be enough food to maintain Genevieve's weight, because at this point we sort of got to the point where you were at a goal weight. Uh, but that was also done with support from the dietitian. Oh, it was, it was done with support by the dietitian. But at times there wasn't actually a list. There were no, um, there was no negotiation. That was one thing. She was going to have what she was going to have and that was it. There were no food preferences, nothing like that. Meals were served for me, so I wasn't putting the food on my plate. Yeah, what I was given was what I had to eat. Yeah, so, so basically I decided or we decided that Genevieve wasn't allowed in the kitchen. She wasn't, certainly wasn't allowed to prepare food because um, she would certainly in the early days, would want to prepare food but not eat it herself. During her recovery, she wasn't allowed in the kitchen. I was the one that decided what she was having and there was absolutely no negotiation. No leaving the table until it was no. complete. Um, and that was just it. I was really quite tough. 
there was also no, there's no foods that I wasn't eating. Mm. We didn't cut out food groups. It was like, you have always been a kid that has eaten every kind of food. We're not going to start limiting food choices by becoming a vegan or a vegetarian or whatever it may be. Every food was part of my life repertoire repertoire mm. and that that was a really big deal that she was that when she recovered that, that we wanted Genevieve to be able to eat any food remnants of an eating disorder where you're still controlling it in some regard by not eating this and not eating that absolutely is there anything that you feel as a mum that you would have done differently upon reflection well I was t- yeah I've, I've wondered about this before I wonder if I should have well, not so much noticed that Genevieve was was not eating as she should have, because I think we, we got onto that pretty early. But I but I do wonder if if we missed something even earlier, you know, because um, it was well and truly in progress by the time we sought help. And I think there's a lot also of finding the right help. You know, I think every family probably finds that they kind of bounce around a bit among providers, medical people, support people before they find the, the particular people that are helpful for them. And, you know, an ideal world would have found those people right from the start. But that's not the real world. I think probably everybody experiences that. And it's a critical thing when you finally find the people who work for you. Oh, absolutely. To have that team is essential. And I think, you know, um, my parents are very much the same in terms of, you know, it had been going on for a little while before they picked it up and they weren't actually the first ones to pick up that that I had an issue. And same thing, we bounced around trying to find practitioners that really understood and weren't playing the blame game. And then once you do find that team, it's almost like you can breathe a sigh of relief and go, right, okay, we can actually start making some progress. Helga, if you could tell other families who are still going through the trenches, so to speak, one thing, what would it be? Um, I think it would be to keep asking questions and to be a bit of a squeaky wheel. That would be one thing. But if I can have two, the other is to ensure that you're separating your person's illness from the person that they are. The reason I think we were able to be so tough was that we were directing our toughness at the eating disorder, not at our daughter who we loved. Um, but it just—it was just a no-brainer. You know, you, you will eat this because I'm actually talking to the voice in my daughter's head at this time. So if you can separate the, the child from the illness, I think that's a, a great thing. And the other thing would be to be a squeaky wheel, ask questions. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. And if it's not working with those support people, find others. Absolutely. It's so important. And one last thing for you, what would you doing for self-care? You know, because I often say to, to parents and carers, it's really important that, you know, self-care happens and it's not selfish, it's self-preservation. What sort of things did you do to help keep yourself afloat throughout that time? I made sure that I went to the gym, not every day. Sometimes I do that actually from the hospital and I might um, go to the gym between 5 and 5.30 in the morning and then that was the highlight of my day and it went downhill from there. I... Um, not when Genevieve was in the immediate throes of her illness, but it was suggested by Genevieve's psychologist that I actually see someone myself because I was a lot of self-blame and I still see her and that has just been a wonderful thing. Yeah, so a little bit of exercise um, just to clear your head. And I also did a little bit of crafty stuff, which I really enjoyed. That was um, when things became a little bit better. But certainly 
just carve out a little bit of time for yourself somehow. And, and also, I think another really important thing to actually um, to be quite open with the person who is unwell about how you're feeling about things. Absolutely. You don't have to pretend that you're coping all the time. You know, there were times where I shouted and I screamed and I cried and I left the house and went around the streets sobbing my eyes out. It's not your job to pretend that that this is not affecting you. I mean, you obviously don't want to be crying, walking around the house. You've got to be the tough one. But from time to time, I think it's all right to actually really state how you're feeling. I think that's really important. I think that's essential because keeping it bottled up is is no good for anyone. I remember my mum doing exactly the same thing, leaving the house and walking around the streets, boiling her eyes out. So you're not alone in that. Yes. Justin, how did it affect you? Like the others, it sort of seemed incessant. It just seemed like it went on and on. In some ways, looking back now, it all seems a bit of a dream, you know, sort of like we were kind of going through the motions for a few years. I, I don't, I don't have terribly bad feelings about the time anymore. I guess in a sense because I'm so grateful that my daughter's well again. But I do remember it being really hard. I remember being exhausted because, you know, I'd go from work to the hospital, come home, sleep, go to work, go to the hospital, come home and sleep. I remember that. But in in a lot of ways it brought our family closer together. I guess I felt most sad for for Juliet because she's this little girl who's having to deal with the three of us being completely focused on Genevieve, including Genevieve herself, I didn't want her to feel like she was sort of on the outer that whole time. I, I, I think in the end it brought us closer together as a family. I was so admiring of how Helga managed the whole thing and, I mean, I credit her with saving my daughter's life um, and I'll always be um, grateful for that. It's amazing. Uh, and I sort of felt like I was the one, you know, I had to go out and you know, living and a bit of a... Rock, I suppose. The financial rock. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's so hard though, because my dad was the same. You know, he had we we had to somehow pay for therapy. And I remember walking into a psychologist's office and her her questioning why dad wasn't there. And then asking me, well, what sort of relationship do you have with your father? And, you know, is he absent? And it was horrible because the only reason dad wasn't there was because it was noon on a Tuesday. He was working. Um and it was just this whole blame and it was horrendous because, you know, as a family, you have to make it work. Somehow, some somewhere along the line, there has to be some finances coming in to to pay for, for treatment. Mm. What was the most challenging thing that you, you found, Justin? Well, we touched on it before, but the least challenging thing I felt, felt was telling everybody because Julie said I felt right from the start that we had to be open about it. There was no way we were going to be ashamed by what our daughter was going through. And, and, and that was good. That got us a lot of a, a lot of help. I guess the the most challenging part was not, not really knowing that it was ever going to end. You know, we we stayed strong through the whole thing. Uh, we definitely did, and and we always sort of thought we had faith that it was going to be okay in the end. But, you know, you don't know, and that not knowing is really really tough. Um, yeah. That would be the hardest. What, if anything, would you do differently, Justin? Is there anything when you reflect on it that you would have done differently? Yes. And, and, you know, we've talked about this in our family. When early on in the process, Genevieve was still at school. As she said, I was going up and helping with her studies and things and she was in hospital. And Helga 
pretty early on realised that we didn't need those distractions, that um, the only important thing in our life at that time was getting Genevieve well. And she pushed the idea that we should let school go, forget about study, forget about exams. That stuff just didn't matter. And it was all about getting Genevieve well. And I resisted that for a long time. I felt, no, we can, we can, you know, we can manage this and still keep up and we can make it all work. But that was unrealistic. And, you know, subsequently, I think we've all come to realisation that a lot of, you know, anorexia is, is correct me if I'm wrong, Molly, because you know more about this than I do, but uh, associated with compulsive behaviour. And the same people who are obsessive about what they eat, often have other obsessions in their life, including things like study or sport. And I believe firmly now that getting over your anorexia, you have to let those obsessions go. Mm-hmm. And, and if you remain obsessed about other things in your life, like getting A-pluses on every exam, then you're not really winning, you know? Oh, absolutely. And and I that I was exactly the same. And and so we had to there was a time where I had to sort of go, no, school is not a priority because and I do believe that my focus on academia through through high school and then through university and you know wanting to top the business school, I mean, nothing was ever good enough, right? And and I could throw myself into that obsessively getting the straight A pluses, you know, not just the straight A's, the straight A pluses it had to be. And it was just, it fueled my eating disorder. It absolutely fueled it. It kept it alive. Also, it distracted me from the fact that I was literally starving because I just was like, we haven't got time for that. Uh, Weirdly, I actually found that the less nourished I was, the more focused I was at, at university. So it all played perfectly into the eating disorder's hands. It's an all or nothing thing, isn't it? But I think um, you really do have to get to the bottom of what the what would be the basis of the problem and, and get that grit out of the wound. Otherwise, it's just, you just put in plasters. Festers. Festers. And so instead of having wellness, people will get, get a bit better possibly, but they're always going to be bothered in some regard by the behaviour, whether it's eating or achieving or whatever. Because I was quite assertive about that. She I was. The school thing is unimportant. <laughs> and um, I haven't quite failed at life. <laughs> no, you absolutely. She got back to school and she yeah. succeeded. And, yeah. You know, that's all fine. It just wasn't, wasn't a priority at the time. Yeah, we, we were on the same page about that um, once he came round to my way of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, what would your advice be to other fathers who have got loved ones who are, who are currently going through an eating disorder? Well, and again, I think inevitably it has to become, sadly, become the most important thing in your life. Um, I mean, it's your child's health. You can't pretend it's not a critical factor. But but I think it's also important to try and maintain some degree of normality. You know, we would still try and go away on family holidays and things like that when we could. Um, I didn't stop working. I mean, I think as a father, I, I, I didn't ever seek uh, any sort of professional help. I do agree with Helga that that's an important thing to consider if it's right for you. Mm-hmm. There's probably a lot of pressure on fathers, uh, it's probably reasonable to say this, uh, to to be the strong one. And, 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 you know, if you're struggling, I would very much encourage you to seek help, you know. It's um, no shame in it. And, uh, 
And if it helps your family, you kind of owe it to them to do that. In terms of your marriage and, and your relationship and keeping that that strong, were there things that you did? Um, and I know for, for my parents, it was really hard for them to ever get any time on their own together when I was unwell because one of them always had to be with me because otherwise I wouldn't eat. And I think that put a lot of strain on their relationship, not having to have that time together. Was that something that you experienced? No, we, we, we had a very busy social life um, before Jerry got unwell and that just completely stopped for years, years and years. It's kind of starting up again now, which is rather nice. Um, yeah, we've got a mojo back. Yeah. <laughs> but for us, no. I can certainly see how it could um, tear people apart. But, but I think the way to avoid that is to remind yourselves that you are working towards a common goal, uh, to put your family first, to have faith in each other. You know, like I said before about the schooling thing, you know, I doubted what Helga was doing in the end, but as she keeps reminding me, I came to her way of thinking. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, that's because I trusted her and, and I could see all the you know, help she was providing for people. Genevieve. So for us, again, it's made our family stronger, but I can certainly see how, how it could go completely the opposite way. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess everyone's everyone's experience is different. I know for our family as well, we are definitely stronger um, and closer than ever before on the other side of it, which is wonderful. Well, honesty is a big part of it. You know, being frank with each other and, and speaking up and not hiding stuff. I think we've always been like that as a family, but I guess um, thinking about it today as I was walking around um, the park, Talking about anorexia nervosa, OCD, mental illness, suicide, how we're feeling, psychologists, it's just such a big part of our life. You know, some families would just think this is odd, loopy, this is really odd. But if Genevieve's not jumping around doing TikTok um, videos <laughs> and I'm not going to see my psychologist and, you know, we're doing it now having a heart to heart and. and we're talking about our mental health at dinner. Yeah. Um, uh, or Genevieve's, you know, fielding a phone call for someone who's really not doing well. It's quite unusual, but you know, it's just the way it is, and um, it's normal in our family. It's normal in our family. Yeah. <laughs> well, everyone's version of normal is, you know, completely different. But I, I mean, well, obviously, you know that I can relate to that because I'm the same fielding phone calls, and it's all about, you know, our lives are about mental health. But I think when you've been through something like that, it's it's natural to for you to, you know, have have more of a passion and be more aware of the importance of talking about it and being super open and transparent. Mm. Can I just say something before I forget what I'm going to say? And I said this when I was chatting to Genevieve the other day that I never want it to come across that we think that the way that we've done it as a family meant that Genevieve has been well, you know, that, that the way that we approached it. So we have the answers, you know, that because there's a lot of, there are probably, you know, most people will have believed their, their child or loved one um, when they've said that they're really struggling, um, that they've loved unconditionally, that they've done everything they possibly could. There's so many people who are going to have done exactly what we've done and haven't had the same outcome. Mm. And I just want to acknowledge that. Mm. And who knows what the answer to that is, but you still just have to keep on hoping mm. and working. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that's a wonderful thing to 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 acknowledge. But I and I also think though that sharing our experiences, although they might be very different and you know, what works for one family might not work for another, I think there's a great power in 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 sharing that and having that connection and that community 
and people can listen and go, I'm so not alone. It might be just one little thing that they pick up in this episode. They go, oh gosh, I just feel so much better to know that, you know, that isn't just our family experiencing that. You know, it might be the relentlessness. It might be the fact, it might be a father going, actually, you know what, I need to seek some help for myself. And I think that's what this is all about, making sure that people understand that um, they're not alone in, um, in battling it. Now, Juliet. Sorry, it's taken me a little while to get to you. How did Jen's battle affect you? I think I'm still actually trying to figure that out because I was so young when Jen was um, struggling with her ED and was in hospital. I, I haven't really started to think about how it affected me until recently and I don't think I really started to notice that it did in fact affect me until these last couple of years I guess the big thing for me was for all of us I'm sure but was how much our lives changed we were introduced to this whole new system new vocabulary just a completely different life and we went from going from to extracurricular activities after school to coming to visit me at the hospital you know Mm. So I don't, yeah, it's hard to say. I don't think there's, I can't really put into words how it affected me because I'm still trying to figure that out. Was there a part that you did find the most challenging? You know, something that changed that you you remember feeling like this is really hard? I think the most challenging part for me was how kind of helpless I was because I didn't feel like I could really do anything for Genevieve or for mum and dad. I was only nine when she was admitted to Starship and there is so little that you can do as a sibling to support your older sister or sibling going through a mental illness. I think that was the most challenging part. I just felt like I couldn't contribute as much to her recovery as I wanted to. But even just being a consistent friend and sibling was important I know that you also found I used to ask you for reassurance quite a lot in terms of the way my body Mm. was looking and that was something that Mm. on multiple occasions you said you need to stop doing this like me asking a little nine-year-old if my legs looked too big going back to what mum said before about separating your loved one from their mental illness yeah was a huge thing for me during that time because I was very confused I'd also get really annoyed at at Genevieve, well, not at Genevieve, at her mental illness because she would put me in awkward situations like, oh, how do I look right now? I'm like, I can't tell you that because no matter what I say to you, you are going to take a negative response from it and it's going to cause even more issues. So separating Genevieve from her mental illness kind of allowed me to not ignore my feelings of, anger or um, being annoyed, I could kind of just put them more towards this other person that was inside my sister's head. I remember we used to, well, I used to just shout at the voice inside her head and tell, tell it to go away. Like we'd have massive screaming fits of just, <laughs> get out, go away, we don't want you here. And I, was, I just remember shouting at Genevieve, which felt very strange because I was shouting at my sister. Um, just going. Maybe you're just doing it to yourself in your bedroom. No, because I remember looking at you and thinking, this is really strange. Um, shouting at her and saying, I'm not going to let you kill my sister. That's not okay. There's no way I'm going to let that happen. And then 
there were a few swear words that a nine-year-old should never really say um, coming out. But uh, that was a big thing for me um, because I did have a lot of emotions circling um, around and a lot of thoughts in my head that instead of ignoring, I was able to kind of get it out and voice it without feeling that I was harming Genevieve in any way. Just for the record, you learned those swear words from your mother. <laughs> I was just about to ask, how, where did those get learned? Yeah. But I, I think that's so important though, like getting those emotions out. I know that was something that my, my little brother, so we had the same sort of age gap, you know, he found really hard to express that because he didn't want to get angry at me. And I think it's really interesting how the eating disorder, because eating disorder did the same thing for me where I would ask, I would ask Eddie um, about like how they look or, you know, because I knew mum and dad wouldn't give me the answer, but maybe, maybe Eddie would. And so it was like the eating disorder was playing on that too and, and trying to invade that sacred relationship. And it's just, it's so wrong. And I think it's fantastic that you, you know, had the gumption to go, well, no, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you that because that's only going to, you know, it's going down a rabbit hole. So I think that's fantastic. Do you think it would have been helpful if there'd been, I've often thought it would be good to have like a siblings support group or something where you could have connected with other siblings who had brothers or sisters that were going through an eating disorder? I've never really thought about that actually. But I'd say, yeah, I, I think that that would have been great. I don't think at the time I would have really benefited from sitting down in an office with a psychologist and talking about my life but sitting with a group of other kids who I could relate to and feel comfortable around talking about our sibling struggles, even if it wasn't for eating disorders, um, just eating disorders, if it was for other mental illnesses, Mm -hmm. I think I would have found that really helpful because we could have probably gone between just having normal discussions and then to casually bringing up, oh, yeah, um, my sister was in it again today, blah, blah, blah. I think that that would have been really helpful. I've never thought about that. That's before. a really good idea. Does that exist? We have been looking at um, establishing something like that because I do think it's important. And, and, you know, like you say, Ju, it's like those conversations are not things you can have in the schoolyard. People are going to be like, what? What are you talking about? And so I think to be able to have that safe space. Yeah, because there's no way I could have gone to school and just started talking about my family's <laughs> um, crazy life. Um, I think a big thing for me was the fact that I had my own little support system outside of the family and away from the hospital. I had the Denims, who are our neighbours and great family friends. I spent a lot of time with them and they understood. I didn't feel like I had to hide anything and I felt really safe with them. I also had an incredible teacher who mum and dad were very honest with and she was very open to having discussions about my life and she understood that I might need a couple minutes at school to just be by myself, take myself out of class just to kind of take a breath. And I also had my dance teacher Bex who was incredible because dance was my own my own thing at the time. I don't have to share it with Genevieve or <laughs> I can't dance. No, she can't. Still can't. And that was really important to me. And I think that helped me a lot because there were people who were kind of just focused on me. Mm -hmm. And it was something that I loved. And I didn't have to think about 
my the rest of my like life and family during that time. But yeah. also dance was something that I had before Genevieve was ill. Mm. I think having that sense of norm- normality. normality. That's really oh, was yeah. really, yeah. That's just a lot really, of, you were shown a lot of love by people that you really trusted and that we really trusted. Mm. And, um, and it took the pressure off us as well. You know, we were running around going to 50 million meetings and things with Genevieve to know that Juliet was with good friends who uh, really cared uh, and where she was having loads of fun mm. was really important. Oh, absolutely. I think that's so, so special. What would you say if there was one piece of advice that you could give to to other siblings who've got, um, you know, brothers or sisters who are currently going through an eating disorder, what would you say to them? I'd say just be their sibling and be their friend. It's not, I don't think it matters what how old you are. Try not to take on the responsibility to look after them and just be their friend and be their sibling and try keep life as normal as you can for them. Bring the little things into their life that can remind them of what life, the good life was beforehand and what it could be after. And yeah, I'd, I'd say just be their friend and don't take the responsibility on for yourself. You guys are amazing. Look at you. I can't thank you enough for for coming together and for sharing your experiences. I know it can be really, really hard to sit down and reflect sometimes, but I know without a shadow of a doubt that this is going to help so many families who are, who are still battling through. And it's such a, it can often feel such an isolating experience. So to be able to, to listen to something like this and know that other people have gone through it and they've come out the other side is going to be, you know, inspiring and something to help you know, get them through it and to hold on to that that hope because we all know that there is so much hope and you guys are an absolute testament to that. So thank you. Thanks for having us. There is hope at endad.org.au. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. This is a Casco Media production.